Hello, this is Dr. Tia Barnes, and welcome to the Scholarly Self-Care Podcast, where we will talk all about the SEL, or social-emotional learning, in self-care. This podcast is for educators, parents, and caregivers of children and youth. Each week, we will talk about your well-being to put you in a better space to support the well-being of the children in your life. Ready to get started? Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited today that I have a guest with me, and her name is Dr. Julia Mafus. She's an assistant professor in the Leadership for Educational Organizations program in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Colorado, Denver. She has a PhD from the Pennsylvania State University in educational leadership with minors in comparative international education and curriculum and instruction. Her research agenda has been shaped by her educational work as an international educator in the capacity of high school teacher, department chair, principal, and curriculum director. Her research explores the social, emotional, and cultural dynamics of urban and rural educational settings and their effects on school climate and school improvement, utilizing both qualitative and mixed methodologies. Her work seeks to deepen our understanding of social-emotional learning through lenses of intervention implementation, school improvement efforts, and preparation of school leaders to create spaces that are equitable for all, where all could flourish, utilizing policy as a lever for change and as a powerful context that shapes education at multiple levels of the system. Her research has been published in journals such as the Journal for Educational Administration, Educational Management Administration and Leadership, International Journal for Leadership in Education, Education in Urban Society, Mindfulness, College Student Affairs Journal, and in practitioner outlets such as the Learning Professional and Education Canada. In 2019, she received the Don Willower Award for Excellence for her significant scholarly achievement in educational leadership. She is currently the program chair for the Social Emotional Learning Special Interest Group, secretary and treasurer for the International Studies Special Interest Group, secretary of Leadership for School Improvement Special Interest Group under the American Educational Research Association. She is also on the organization committee of the Consortium for the Study of Leadership and Ethics in Education's Values and Leadership Conference. On a personal note, she's happiest when she's in nature. As part of attempting to maintain a vibrant, well-balanced lifestyle, she makes sure to find time to do what she loves, such as meditation, traveling, reading, spending time with family, and outdoor activities. She loves sampling new restaurants and coffee shops, and she is always willing to expand her comfort zone to try something new. As a typical Lebanese, she speaks Arabic and French. Welcome to you, Julia. How are you? Thank you. Thank you, Tia. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining. And as your bio says, you have done a lot of work in the area of leadership and social emotional learning. And I'm so excited to have you here to talk about your expertise in this area. I think so far with the guests that have come on, we've talked from everything from parenting to work with teachers, but we haven't had anyone come on yet that can really speak to principals and some of the 
ways that we can support them or help them in supporting teachers and students. And so I'm very excited to hear your thoughts around this. Great. So the way we typically start the podcast is I just start off by asking you a little bit about your story. So if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, I would love to introduce you to the guests in that way. Sure. As you've just mentioned, I'm Lebanese, born and raised, and I've always wanted to be an educator. So I decided to become a teacher. I taught at different places and across various grade levels. I taught elementary, middle school, and high school. I found myself loving the high school age group more than any other group, I guess, because I love the engagement and the level of complexity of conversations one has during uh, our lesson discussions. Mm-hmm. I used to be amazed at the need of connection students craved for. So they wanted someone who was ready to listen to them, to engage with them, and to appreciate the various personalities that they have, to basically understand them. So I tried my best to be that person, and I got in some trouble, I guess, at times um, as a result of that. Then I was nominated to be a principal. So the whole educational leadership role came to me without me pursuing it. And I didn't really plan it but I loved it too. So I went into education leadership, Mm -hmm. became a principal. And then during that period of time, I was extremely stressed due to the workload. I'm going to talk more about that. Mm -hmm. And this is when I decided to quit and pursue my PhD in education leadership. Okay. Okay. Well, yes, let's definitely get into that. There are two things that I, I want to talk a little bit about. First was you talked about, you know, building those relationships with your students and that in times it got you in trouble. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Just like very quick, maybe example is that at many times the students would come to me asking for some kind of help mm-hmm. that would contradict what the counselor is saying, knowing that they would be maybe under some disciplinary kind of actions. And I would disrupt that through certain behaviors. So the counselor wasn't happy. And then the principal called on me telling me that, I can't interfere. But when I projected my case, talking about how the students are, basically, they're not just individuals with looking at, we shouldn't look at the students with just student achievement Mm -hmm. as as a focus, but also understand their situation. I guess he became more understanding of why I sometimes interfere. Yes, yes. I'm glad you brought that up and that you fully explained that because that was my, that was what I thought it was likely um, linked to was the fact that you had started to create these positive relationships. And because Mm -hmm. you have more of that SEL focus that you were likely focusing in on things that, you know, Mm -hmm. perhaps traditionally haven't been necessarily at the forefront in schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you also mentioned being under a lot of stress when you were serving as a principal. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience and some of the things that you learned along the way? Sure. I could say that, first of all, I love the power that one had to make things happen as a principal, like make changes and see the change influence positively the overall school environment Mm -hmm. and school improvement. But I tell you, as you may know, it was quite challenging too and very, very exhausting. I remember I used to go to work from 6 a.m. and return back home by 8 or 9 p.m. I couldn't find the work balance. It truly took most of my time at the expense of my family. And Mm -hmm. it is also a very lonely job. It's difficult to build that kind of network of support as a principal because supposedly all your teachers are your subordinates and you shouldn't, or you wouldn't want to show that you're vulnerable, which is 
quite also weird because now I'm learning that it is okay to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And no one really takes into consideration all the work and burnout principles may be kind of going through. So as a parent, also, it was very difficult for me to ensure that my son, who was in elementary back then, is back home, being fed, having constructive time, knowing that I'm basically focusing on the work. And principals are under a lot of pressure with all the demands that are imposed on them, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the pressures of accountability, evaluations that are tied up to student proficiency. You have all the changing legislative mandates that they have to adopt and adapt. There are expectations for increased student achievement and improved kind of instruction. They're expected to work harmoniously with different types of people. And I work with people with parents of 70 different nationalities, mm. which was, was quite difficult. Principals have to operate in multiple dimensions, right? They have to move from individual capacity to group empowerment. Then you have to go back to whole school improvement. And then again, to individual capacity. And in addition to all of that, there's the whole documentation of everything that you're doing. The relationship building that you have to do with the families, with the communities, with the board, with the upper administration. So you end up being very stressed and exhausted. And when you don't employ any of the productive strategies and knowing that we don't have much of any professional development that attends to that. Mm. And even in preparation programs, we are not really prepared. Even if you have the preparation program, meaning that you have the licensure of being a principal, we don't really focus on social emotional learning. We end up being burnout. So there's a lot of stress going on. So I was that kind of principal. And I felt that I needed to tackle that issue. And I also saw kind of that burnout with my students who had difficulties in various social and emotional realms. I had a student who was very impulsive and reacted to anger to any setback. I also saw it with how teachers sometimes find it difficult responding healthily to students, especially when they don't have the additional support. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it also with myself as a parent, right? The lack of tolerance and patience of understanding my son at times. And so this is when I decided to pursue that PhD in education leadership that focuses on social emotional learning. I love that. So you said some very, I think, important things. Well, all of it was important, but some of the things that stuck out for me, one is how you talked about the lack of training that is provided Mm -hmm. to folks in leadership roles around social emotional wellness. And I know that, especially now, in the current context of the pandemic, a lot of that is changing. However, I think, you know, one of the things that may not necessarily be changing as much is that now, though we are moving more into a space of educating leaders on social and emotional well-being, I think it's still from the lens of how can you support social and emotional well-being of the students? And in some cases, how can you support the social and emotional well-being of your your faculty and your staff. But what have you been seeing mm-hmm. in your work? And I, I, this is my assumption, so I'm looking to you as the expert, but are you seeing a lot in terms of supporting the social and emotional well-being of the leader, so of the administrator? Well, I mean, just to add, as you just mentioned, I guess the uh, leading policy institute along with the NAESP just released a new report that shows that Principals want a professional learning and support around SEL, and they feel like they need that to attend to the needs of their students and their parents, and as well as their teachers. Yes, I could see that, especially in our classes, like in my classes where I teach in a principal licensure program, 
the teachers and the principals are demanding that we focus on social emotional learning. And I think that many programs right now are understanding the need, especially that uh, with the new state standards that are being set, many states have understood the idea that SEL or social emotional competencies for leadership need to be integrated in these evaluation state standards. So yes, it is basically picking up, especially during this whole COVID, it seems like it has been highlighted that in order for us to attend to the needs of the whole school, we need to cultivate the social emotional competencies of the principals themselves. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think it's always so interesting how things come about, especially in the social emotional learning world, because I feel like mm-hmm. I've noticed this pattern and just talking with others that are you know, doing this work and that are in this area. And it seems like we've all started with the children and how can we support mm-hmm. the children? And then it moved to, okay, how can we support the teachers? And now we're getting to the leadership and I'm just, you know, wondering and, and hoping that as we're moving through this, we'll realize just how important this is for all the different stakeholders mm-hmm. that are going exactly. to be supporting children. Yeah, exactly. And the whole idea that it seems like we forget that also principals play a huge role in the whole school culture. So mm-hmm. principals who cultivate their social emotional well-being would be able to listen better to others. They would be able to develop effective leadership. They would be able to build healthy relationships, effective family and community partnerships, and even appreciating this whole social emotional programs, right, which leads to healthy school culture that fosters well-being and flourishing. So it has to start also from the top too, simultaneously with this whole student SEL. Yes, definitely. So I did some work a couple years ago now uh, with a school. And just to, I guess, speak to that point. We were doing case Mm -hmm. studies in certain schools that have been doing some SEL uh, integration through a program. And it was just interesting to see at the various levels how important it was for that message and the idea of SEL to be embedded and how important leadership was in that. Because it's one thing to give directives, you know, from the state level or from the district level to principals Mm -hmm. saying this is something that you need to include. And then seeing how how it plays out versus if it's a leader who is who is very much invested and who is, mm-hmm. you know, coming from a place of they themselves uh, supporting their own social emotional well being and seeing it play out in their lives and then wanting to share that with their teachers and students and how much of a difference it makes and what you actually get from that social emotional learning framework, I'm going to say. I'm not going to necessarily say it's inter- it, it has to be a particular intervention, but just the idea of mm-hmm. embedding it into the schools. And so, yes, I, I exactly. just, yeah. So I'm curious to know, like, what are some of the things that you're doing in that realm? And what are some of the ways that you think we can support leadership in getting to that space? Sure. So one of the projects that I've been doing is basically implementing professional development, SEL-based professional development with the principals to see its effects on their well-being and their leadership. Mm -hmm. And it's quite interesting to see how, as you just mentioned, participants or the principals who are really bought into the whole process seem to have been, been able to ready to apply it 
at their school and they're quite invested in it. And you could see a change in the culture as a result mm-hmm. at their schools. And this is one aspect that I do. And in addition to this is that I look into how such programs where it would be professional development for the principals, professional development for the teachers and interventions for students to see its impact on the whole school culture, whether it is the language that they use when they describe each other, how they describe the students, the the atmosphere and the environment as a whole Mm. of what it is, what else. And at the same time, I'm looking at if or whether SEL is being embedded in the state standards, the state-level school leader certification requirements, and, and to see to what extent it is embedded as in pertaining to student well-being, teacher well-being, and leader well-being. And uh, we're still working on the data collection. And it seems like for now, not much is focused on uh, principal well-being mm-hmm. as much as student well-being. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. So what would you say is like one of the most interesting things that you've learned in your work? Or it doesn't just have to be one thing, but what are some of the the interesting things that you've learned in your work that you think would be helpful to those that are currently in the field? Pertaining to social emotional wellness as a whole? Yes, for principals, I guess, specifically. Or if you've learned anything for any other groups, that would be helpful. Yeah, so... I guess there's one thing. I was having an interview with one of the participants who came to become a, a colleague of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, she once said something very striking that really st- and stuck with me. When we were give, were having interviews uh, with all the principals to see to what extent the whole um, social-emotional learning-based program affected them and their leadership, she mentioned that she has been following this magic recipe that she has learned from Swenson's book, Margin, Restoring Emotional, Physical, Financial, and Time Resources to Overload Lives. Mm -hmm. And she explains that to her, margin is basically the amount available beyond that which is needed. It is something held in um, reserve for when one faces like an unanticipated situation. So it is basically the kind of leeway between ourselves and our limits. So she explains this whole idea behind the book, which is basically that we have two things, power and load. Power is made up of factors such as like skills, time, resources, emotional strength, physical strength, faith, financial support, knowledge, or whatever that is like more that can kind of look up pertaining to power. Mm-hmm. And load can includes internal factors such as like personal aspirations, personal expectations, expectations in general, external factors like workload, relationship expectations, responsibilities, social involvement. And so when our power is greater than our load, we have this margin. We have like enough space to take more or to be balanced or handle everyday life. Mm -hmm. And even when there is a crisis, we'd have enough margin to handle that. However, when our load is greater than our power, then we have no margin. Mm. We'd be overloaded with, which leads to stress, anxiety, and eventually won't be able to handle it. So enduring this no margin definitely damages our physical, mental, spiritual, or even relational health and well-being. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to teachers, she tells them that they have to always make sure that they are not depleted and they are keeping some margin in order to operate healthily work-wise and Mm life-wise. It was quite interesting for me to hear that because it seems like 
it makes sense, right? It would be interesting in a culture where it is hard, for, exa- for example, for us to say no to people, right? Especially when it comes to saying no to certain tasks that we have to do, to simply say instead, if, instead of saying basically no to something, we could say that I have no margin, meaning that like it makes more sense, right? I, yeah. I, I don't have the resources to attend to whatever you're asking me to do. So if I feel like this kind of language in our lives seems to make more sense to me. And it's, it's really stuck with me. And I really appreciated that aspect of how she explained it. Yeah, I love that. This idea of I don't have the margin to engage in that right now. And I love yeah. how you talked about, you know, all the possibilities within the idea of the margin. And I especially like how you talked about this margin being what we need to live in a healthy way. Because I think for a mm-hmm. lot of people, they think, well, I'll push the things I need, actually need to the wayside to make, to try to make the space for that, to do those exactly. additional things that I need to do. And you're right, looking at it like I don't have the margin for it. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we've been talking a lot about social and emotional well being, but I wanted to go back and ask you how do you define it? So, what do you see social and emotional well being as? Um, in simple words, I guess social emotional well being to me is basically understanding oneself, what one can offer others, mm-hmm. what their limits are, and knowing how to attend to one's needs in order to sustain a healthy way of being. So it is having like strong social emotional skills that one could utilize in order to deal with life in a positive, healthy way. I love that. Okay. So in thinking about this idea of like social and emotional well being. What do you think your message is to the world? So what what is one message that you want to share with others about wellness and social and emotional wellness in particular? Mm-hmm. I think in the realm of education as educators, like teachers and principals, we tend to sacrifice our lives for others, right? Mm-hmm. And then I guess in many other professions as well. So I feel like if there's one thing that I feel like is important to capture is that self-care is not a selfish act. We always think of it as a selfish act, mm-hmm. but it is not. It is basically a vessel from which we give from. If I'm a stressed mother, I won't be able to give my son the time, the love, the attention that he needs, right? Yeah. It would show in, in, in how I respond and I behave. So if I take care of myself, again, if I have this margin, if I build that kind of margin because of the resources, I'd be able to give and respond positively because I'm not depleted, right? Instead, yeah. I have the resources that I could utilize to better way of living. So I think this is something that is really important. Self-care is definitely not a selfish act. I love that. Yeah, I love that you brought it back to the margin because you're right. The more that we are taking care of ourselves and doing the things to support ourselves, the more capacity we may have to give to others. And so, yes, very mm-hmm. important point. Linking to that as well, I wanted to talk a little bit about your own self-care journey. And so can you tell me about the things that you've done and learned along the way on your own self-care journey? Sure. So you should know, though, that I'm still trying to understand what self-care means to me. And my journey is more of a, seemed to be like more of a drastic shift from a point Mm -hmm. of where I don't think I was living, but surviving. Mm. Um, and this started happening, I guess, when I became a principal more than any, any other place. Like when I was a teacher, I was loving the actual teaching. So I did not feel it. But when I became a principal, 
I felt I was burnt out. Mm-hmm. I was definitely experiencing fatigue. I started having health issues. And then I realized that I'm depleted and started that kind of journey of shifting into the type of life that I think is more sustainable and healthy. The important step, I guess, was the very beginning is being aware and acknowledging that one has to love oneself first. As I said before, it's like accepting myself because at times when you are a principal, you think that you're not enough. Mm-hmm. You think that you're not doing as much as you should. You feel like you're a failure because there are a lot of things that you have to do. And if you're not able to do them all, it's like you are the one who has the problem. Mm. So accepting myself helped me bring a sense of inner peace and stability in my mental, physical, even emotional and social self. So um, as a result, I started learning how to be present and mindful, Mm -hmm. uh, deliberately kind of bringing my awareness into the present moment that offered me kind of relief from replaying thoughts in my mind. For example, how I should have answered that complaining parent, exercising self-judgment, you know, so it's like, so understanding that the issue is not me, the issue is not that person, it's the issue in itself. It helped me really live each day from a place of love and acceptance for mm-hmm. myself. And, and as a result of that, I started accepting others too, as they are, right? Yeah. So I learned that life is a journey where, of course, there's love and pain and, and both are important, essential for understanding ourselves and others. So practicing non-judgment, kindness, compassion were essential if I am to live a fulfilled life. And so I tried engaging in all these social emotional competencies that I needed to learn and practice, not only learn, because sometimes in theory, you understand and you know that they are important, but just practicing them is really kind of crucial. And uh, what else? One more element might be the aspect or the concept of Ubuntu, which is like, I am because you are, and you are because I am. Mm. This understanding of this interconnectedness that we have, uh, the need for each other, seemed to be quite important for me too in this kind of journey. I love that. Can you tell me the concept again, the name of, because they're kind of cut out right before and I want to make sure that I get it. Yeah. I think Ubuntu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly too. Okay. Very fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. So first, I love how you discussed your journey and I love first and foremost, how you talked about how it's something that you're still on because as part of this podcast, that's something I state like every week. I'm still on my journey. I don't think it it is something that we ever officially get to this place where we are just so well that we're, you know, we're gurus in the area. I think it's something that we have to keep working on, even though this may be something that we study, it is still something that we have to consistently work on within ourselves. And so I love that you you brought that up because I do think that sometimes when people hear from folks that are experts in a particular field, it just feels like, well, they've, they have it all figured out and this is something that they're necessarily yeah. all doing. And so I think that's a great reminder to folks. I also... Yeah, and, and life throws at you different things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, life throws at me different aspects that I need to attend to. And every time something new comes up and I have to attend to that kind of challenge, so... Exactly. That's the other thing. You're right. So even though you may have reached a certain place in your self-care where you may feel like, oh, I'm I'm now 
mastering this, yeah, life happens and things change and we have to, Mm -hmm. you know, change with them. And so there's never going to be a place where we're just, where we've reached like this pinnacle and we're just going to stay there. Who would have thought that COVID-19 would come and and shift everything that we do, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's a big, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a big reminder right there. (laughs) Um, It's one of Mm -hmm. the main ones to consider. So I also um, loved how you talked about in your self-care, it seemed that you're doing a lot of inner work as well, which I love. You talked a little bit about doing some mindfulness. And mm-hmm. as you, as I was reading your bio earlier, I know you also mentioned doing some publications around mindfulness. So I'd love to learn more about you know, what mindfulness is to you and some of the things that you do. Because I had an episode a while back where I just talked about mindfulness, not necessarily having to be meditation. That's, you know, one form of it, Mm -hmm. but just trying to encourage the folks that listen to the podcast to try out different techniques and things like that. So I'd love to hear from you about what you do for that. So for me, mindfulness is a way of being. It's not only just sitting and doing mindfulness as in meditation. It could be attentive listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, mindful uh, Mindfulness could be going to a park and listening to the birds. Uh, it could be being focused on one thing and letting your mind just focus on this one thing that you're doing. So there are different aspects and I believe it's, of course, it's a skill that you learn with time, but it's definitely, a way, for me, it's a way of being. It's a way of how you cultivate all these different competencies and skills mm. to have a mindful life. I don't know if I'm making sense here. No, you are making sense. I love the way that you talk about it as a way of being. And so just over time, when you initially started this journey of mindfulness, like think back to when you were that principal and you were burnt out, like what were some of the things that you did to help you move in that direction for those that may just be starting out? I started with training, actually. Like I went for a retreat mm-hmm. where John Kabat-Zinn was having a workshop on how we cultivate mindfulness into our lives. And it was life transforming. And I'm saying that everyone has to go through something like that. It's maybe through the small skills that you continue on applying in your daily life with your kids, with your coworkers, with your families, with your friends. And then you become, it becomes part of how you think, how you feel, how you act, and becomes embedded through you. So it's more of a um, as I said, again, a way of being. And it's definitely toolkits, right? Small things that you keep on doing that you become better at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. So is there anything else that you're currently doing for your self-care that we may not have mentioned? I think you mentioned them at the very beginning. I mean, I exercise, I read for pleasure, I make sure to spend time with my family. I do watch movies. I mean, anything that makes me feel happy, something that that makes me even focus on whatever I'm doing at the moment. Like cooking for me is so meditative. Mm-hmm. Surrounding myself with people that I care about and love. Like all of this is part of my self-care and having some me time, some time that is just for myself yeah. is quite important. It is important for me to 
not only attend to others all the time, just like to attend also to my needs, even if there's just very minute activities too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one other question that's just come to mind is thinking about the self-care as a journey. I'm interested to see like, how has your self-care changed due to COVID? So what are some of the things that you may be doing more of or less of as a result? Yeah. So as I said, I love cooking. I love trying different types of foods. And now I cannot go out as often. I also feel happy when I engage with friends. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now it seems like it's all on Zoom. So it has shifted. But at the same time, it has given me more time to practice meditation, to do some more yoga, to exercise more, even at home. So I shifted the kinds of self-care that were maybe sustainable before COVID into some other self-care activities that I could do uh, from home. I love that. And that also shows the importance of having multiple activities that you have in your like self-care toolkit, your self-care repertoire, just so that as things shift and as life changes, you may lean more heavily on some than the other. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we end today? I hope that uh, given the situation that we're living in right now, that self-care becomes a priority in every single household or even work environment. And we start thinking about it as a priority too. Yes, I completely agree with that one. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that will occur. And I hope that it stays that way for the long term. I've definitely seen more of an increased interest in it. So I hope it's here to stay. So the last question I have for you is where can our listeners engage with you, Julia? So I'm not very much into social media as as I should be, I guess, but I'm on Twitter on Julia Mahfou, at Julia Mahfouz. Okay. Um, I have my website, juliamahfouz.com, I guess. And if they just Google my name um, on Google Scholar, they'll have my, could see my articles that have been published or just my website through my institution. Okay, perfect. And so we'll add those to the show notes just in case anyone wants to connect and maybe learn more about your work with leadership and social and emotional wellness. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining. And yes, I will talk to you later. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please visit drtiabarnes.com for show notes. And while you're there, feel free to leave a note. I'd love to connect. If you like the show, subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about it. Don't forget to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. Thank you to ColetteMcKenzie.com for providing podcast management services for this show. See you all next week. And as always, take care. Take care.